Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Addie Kim, host of Literary Studies on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Daniel Kim, writer of the book, The Intimacies of Conflict, A Cultural History of the Korean War, published by New York University Press in 2020. Daniel Kim is Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Brown University. His primary research field is 20th century U.S. literature with a particular focus on the Asian American and African American traditions, ethnic studies, gender studies, and the Cold War. He is author of two books. His first book, published by Stanford University Press, is called Writing Manhood in Black and Yellow, Ralph Ellison, Frank Chin, and the Literary Politics of Identity. Today's conversation is about his second book. So Daniel, I enjoyed reading your book. It was really informative, and you show such an admirable range, admirable handle over your range of materials, um, both primary and secondary. Um, I also found this book to strike a perfect balance between being both nuanced and accessible, which is no small feat in my opinion. Um, So my first question is, what inspired you to turn to the Korean War for your second book project? Um, well, thank you so much uh, for having me on this. I've never done this before, and, and I'm a little nervous, but I'm also excited. Um, I guess um, to a certain extent, I guess even growing up, I had a fascination with the 1950s. Um, and my first real research project was my senior thesis uh, back in the 80s, which was on the Emmett Till project. Um, and I remember um, reading the black newspaper coverage of that racial murder and being struck by how um, how international the address of the black, pre- I mean, the black reporters were speaking to a global audience, and I kind of picked up on that then. And I remember that just sort of got filed away someplace. Um, and as I was finishing my first book, I was really, I got fascinated again uh, by the 1950s through thinking, taking up uh, Ralph Ellison's work. Um, and one of the things that's very frustrating about Ellison sometimes is you almost never get a sense of a wider world when he's writing about black literature or jazz or whatever. I mean, there's very 
uh, little sense that there's a kind of global history pressuring his writing. And I was just very curious about that. And I thought, okay, how can I sort of uh, return to this period? Um, and and I another like factoid I had tucked away someplace was the fact that I, I remembered hearing that it was the first U.S. war uh, where military units were racially integrated. And I thought, hmm, maybe there's something there. Um, so I just started digging around um, and then sort of out of nowhere, I, I just, you know, it's like so weird that I think about it this way, but like I suddenly thought like, wait, I actually have kind of a personal relationship to this history. Um, and it wasn't like the primary driving uh, force, but it was definitely there. Um, and um, and as I started this project, uh, it was shortly after, I mean, I've been working on it for a long time, so it was shortly after 9-11. Um, and so the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were happening. Um, and I just, you know, that's sort of where I was. I just wanted to understand, I just wanted to look at that period. And I thought that I would try to find a group of writers of color um, that uh, whose works were kind of inflecting that context in some way. And I didn't find anything um, that really was working. Um, and then I think another event that sort of really helped galvanize the first part of the project was I, 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 uh, I went out to UCLA and um, they have a lot of film. Um, I, I'm blanking on the name of the archive, but I just watched every Korean War film I could find. Um, and, you know, and so I just noted the ones that were really interesting to me. Um, and I guess Steel Helmet was the first, like, really thick, interesting text I came up with. Um, and so I kind of started with that. And um, as I was working on that, like, um, oh, yeah, the Life magazine coverage of the war was was really fascinating. And, and those were the, yeah, and I was like this is crazy, <laughs> you know, this is like crazy interesting. And, um, and I don't really do a ton of archival research, but I, when, I, when I'm talking to people who were on the archives to talk about that moment, you're like, oh my God, this is crazy. I have to write about that. Um, yeah, so that's how the 50s part of the project took shape. Um, and as I was working on that material, books just kept coming out uh, by Asian American writers. And then Toni Morrison came out with Home. And so it was, you know, I guess there was a kind of double vision happening. I was working on the 1950s materials um, and then um, novels were being written. And then I guess the third big uh, uh, thing that happened for me was I was asked to um, uh, take part in this uh, panel on war memorials or the, sorry, the it was the Price of Freedom exhibit on war at the Smithsonian at the National Museum of American History and to comment on the very tiny Korean War part of that exhibit. Um, and that happened around the same time I visited, uh, I made one of my first research trip visits to Korea and went to the war memorial there. Um, and so that put me in touch with folks who were thinking about, uh, you know, the how history gets uh, narrated through exhibits like that. And, um, and that ended up being like a big influence, I think, because toward the end of writing this book, I started, I think, um, adopting a kind of curatorial perspective. Like I was very aware that I was curating a very selective account of the war, um, or at least a, a selective account of the cultural memory of the war. Um, and I think the stuff I learned as I was teaching myself how to write about museums came into play there in, a, in an interesting way. 
Yeah, um, I actually was first acquainted with your work through your article on the Korean War Memorial. Um, and kind of reading about it again um, in your conclusion of the book, it brought all these memories back with me visiting it when I was a kid. Mm, right. <laughs> um, oh, you grew my, up in Korea then? No, um, it was when we were visiting. My dad oh. took me there, but I have very distinct memories of it impacting me a lot. Um, but it was during the, the sunshine policy period. Um, and yeah, my memories of it was that it was just, you know, a tragedy um, for, I mean, it was definitely centered on South Koreans, but sure. there wasn't the demonization of North Koreans that, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, in that retrospect, was... I would have expected, but given the time period, maybe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was the weird thing, because I think you visited the version of the exhibits I first visited, and then I had that weird experience. I went um, a couple years later, and it was a different administration in power, and, and there had become, I mean, they had completely reworked all these exhibits, which I thought was crazy, um, and then there was suddenly a much more right-wing narrative very apparent mm. in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and especially, you know, kind of given the results of the South Korean election just I know. a few days ago, it's just yeah. there's going to be this continual toggling back and forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so your book joins a rich assemblage of Asian American scholarship on U.S. wars in Asia, but it's rare to see Americanists go as in-depth as you do into this specific flashpoint in the Cold War. What place would you say the Korean War has within Asian American studies more broadly? Um, well, I guess what I noticed in the criticism on the, I mean, when I started this project, there was um, a kind of explosion of criticism on race in the Cold War. Um, I mean, I guess Jody Kim's book is the sort of uh, most uh, central uh, work like that in Asian American studies, but there was also Christina Klein's work. And in, in FM, there was uh, Mary Dujak and um, Penny Valen Eschen, Thomas Borselman. So I thought, okay, and, and almost all of those things, there's a very like kind of minor reference to the Korean War. Um, and I thought, well, why is it sort of, and, and oftentimes they were like a really important um, facet of this history was the Korean War. And they'll say like three sentences and then they'll move on. Um, and and I think the thing is because the duration of it, of it is, you know, as it's, you know, the official duration of it, I mean, it's, it's unended now, right, in actuality, but the official duration of it, 1950 to 1953, was so short in that, um, and, and so many of the things that I found so interesting about the war actually um, are more visibly apparent in the Vietnam War. Um, and it sort of, you know, it tends to disappear between um, Korean War, I mean, sorry, Vietnam War and World War II scholarship. Um, so I think there was a tendency to, to, to sort of let it sort of be absorbed into these other histories. Um, and um, yeah, so I think it was, it seemed like it was unusual to sort of try to figure out um, what happens if you actually focus on that event? Um, and one thing I did want to honor is that I wasn't trying to sort of say, here's this very punctual, discreet history that is the Korean War. His, you know, this is the history of the Korean War. There's, there's some sort of coherent singularity to it. Uh, I actually did want to show how it blurs and disappears into these other histories. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I've noticed that, I mean, Christine Hong is somebody who was, who was a very influential person in terms of, um, well, partly for introducing me to scholars in Korean studies. Um, but also I noticed her book came out at the same time. And, and she also, um, and she's very, very active in thinking about the Korean War, the ongoing Korean War. And her book similarly sort of folds, similarly and dissimilarly folds the Korean War into a larger history. Um, so, um, yeah, I think the thing is people have enfolded it to larger histories, but they haven't named it as such. And that's one thing I wanted to do. And I think the other thing I wanted to do, um, and maybe this is the curatorial bit was I wanted to see if there was a set of, uh, sort of recurrent images that emerged out of the coverage of the war. Um, cause we can think of certain images from like, say the first Iraq war, the, uh, the CNN images or, or uh, General Schwarzkopf, like what was the iconography around the Korean War? So partly I just wanted to go back and say uh, and, and see what that would have looked like to Americans, you know, and, and so the, re the rhetorical point I make is like, what did the Korean War look like before it was forgotten? Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I do know there's several other studies out there that are sort of, um, 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 you know, running parallel to mine. And, uh, and I think one book that, I think of as a sister book is uh, Grace Cho's Haunting the Korean Diaspora, which um, is very, very different um, than mine, but I think they're animated by, you know, um, a weirdly similar set of impulses. Um, and uh, I, I know her and we actually just taught her in a class yesterday, but um, I found that work really beautiful um, and, you know, generative. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, um, and I think, I mean, I think the other thing about the Korean War um, is connected to uh, a weirdness around the status of Korean Americans in Asian American studies, um, which is I think there's a sense that Korean Americans, that even among Asian Americans, because Korean Americans are the model minority, um, that they don't, um, their their history isn't enlisted as easily into uh, the kind of narratives we like to we tend to focus on um and uh it doesn't sort of um open up to a critique of u.s empire as immediately as say the vietnam war does but it but it obviously can be opened up that way um but it takes a little bit more work and it takes a little bit more um you know pushing against historical forgetfulness and it also yeah so there's more work involved but i think there's there's more stuff coming out um that that sort of uh continues to widen this. And there's also um, Josephine Park's uh, Cold War Friendships, which looks at Korean War literature next to um, Vietnam War literature um, um, in the Asian American context. Uh, so there are other studies out there, and uh, I hope more come out. Um, I know that uh, Jihan Lim is also working on something. So um, yeah, and I should just add like one thing about this project that has been really amazing was that like it's it's it put me in touch with so many interesting people who were like so supportive uh, of one another and and that i loved about the process mm -hmm. yeah your book definitely brought to mind grace cho christine hong josephine park uh of course um but yeah like hong and park they talk about they contextualize the korean war as product part of this broader cold war or u.s-led total war framework but 
you're like very granular in comparison, um, but in ways that actually um, still speak to kind of the ways the Korean War gets enfolded into these other processes. Like I was very struck, especially in the first part of your book with the connections with Japanese Americans um, and the model minoritization of Japanese Americans and Japan for that matter um, uh, with kind of the outbreak of the Korean War, really. But um, yeah, it was very fascinating to me to see you kind of chart out these intimacies, I guess, um, uh, within the 1950s. And then you kind of go on. It's not just about the 1950s. Your second half goes into the cultural memory of the Korean War from more contemporary periods. But um, this kind of leads into my next question, which is that one of the principal ways you frame your perspective is by emphasizing the intimacies of conflict across national and racial boundaries. Can you go more into what you mean by the term intimacies? Yeah, I mean, I think the most obvious debt is to Lisa Lowe and the intimacies of four continents. Um, and, you know, I think of it uh, in reference to that as a kind of historiographical impulse one thing that is continuous between my first book and this one is that I wanted to do comparative race work, although I'm not using the word comparative so much anymore because I think um, that book, uh, Habeas Viscus by Alexander Wahelier, which I know I'm not pronouncing his right name correctly, but his account of uh, of why thinking in terms of why, why comparative race studies why there's problems with that framework. That having been said, you know, basically bringing Asian American concerns in relation to other racial concerns domestically was always something that I've been devoted to. Um, and, and I wanted to continue that here. And then I wanted to figure out how that worked transnationally. So, um, you know, and I think, so in the simplest terms, like I try to put Asian American, not even, uh, so within Asian American, I try to place Korean American, uh, Japanese American, even to a certain extent, Chinese American perspective side by side. Um, and, um, you know, because I think there's a tendency in transnational work to go mono ethnic or mono national. Um, and uh, I just wanted to avoid that. So, so intimacies is a sort of, um, I guess, intimacies names my desire to continue to be thinking relationally about race um, and also empire. Um, and so that's the sort of historic, historiographical dimension of it. And then I think um, I realized the uh, second aspect of intimacy is kind of late, uh, which was that all of my readings were about uh, intense bonds that that form between characters in the, across a, a range of media, and usually across race, gender, nationality, political orientation, whatever. Um, and... Um, you know, my first book was heavily influenced by queer theory. Um, and, and I think there's, even though this, it, I don't look at erotics per se, I think the other thing that carried over was um, an interest in affect um, or emotion, desire. And I don't mean in the kind of Brian Masumi Deleuze version of affect theory, um, but just generally like emotional texture, structure. Um, and, um, and I just realized like, every single narrative is sort of uh you know pivots around an intense bond and you know and then i realized like recasting what christina klein's argument um, around that term intimacy sort of did a certain amount of work for me and then it gave me a, a sort of framework for what 
the the novels in the second half of the of the study were doing, which was exploding different um, Cold War formations of of intimacy that took shape during the Korean War. So, um, you know, like you always hear people say, and you always tell your students, like you don't often don't figure out what your argument is till you're done. And 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 I so and, and oddly enough, intimacies came very very late. Um, in terms of being an explicit concept that I named. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the term intimacies, yes, the Lisa Lowe reference for sure, but um, I like how you frame it in terms of this affect and desire that's that forms from like these imperial connections. <laughs> um, I mean, like it's a kind of, affect and desire that maybe Asian Americanists hesitate. You, you know, it's it's complicated to talk about desire that's leading in the direction of the imperial core, right? But um, you kind of catch on to the fact, I mean, one of the reasons I was interested in reading your book was because the two big Korean War novels written by Korean Americans um, Susan Choi's The Foreign Student and Chang Rae-Lee's The Surrendered, they're very, they're both novels that are all about this kind of uncomfortable, yet very powerful intimacy. Um, so yeah, and then I think you really do those two works justice in your in your book by talking about it, by foregrounding this framework of intimacies. But um, you cover such an impressive range of cultural productions in your book from the Cold War period, from the early Cold War period up until the present. Um, but with these more contemporary works, you emphasize the creative use of memory and how it can lead to modes of narration we wouldn't typically expect with quote-unquote realism. So can you tell us about how you see memory out in relation to fictionality and genre? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um sort of what I hear behind your question is, is a little bit, um, there's not like a straightforward realist novel about the Korean or Korean American experience of the Korean war, um, by Korean American author. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, what, what I was struck by and in a weird way, I wanted that to be out there as something I could sort of push against. Um, but there's not a sort of straightforward historical realist novel about the war from a Korean American perspective. And what you get instead are these other, I mean, they're all experiments in genre, um, in different ways. And I found that really interesting. Um, and I think part of that, um, I think part of that's driven, I mean, I could put it in a negative way, which is I, I, I do sometimes feel like there's this sense that Korean Americans telling their story, it's not sufficient on its own terms. Um, like it has to be added to something else for it to be meaningful. Um, this is something Kathy Park Hong talks about, um, that you need, it can't just be Korean Americans. It has to be Korean Americans plus capitalism or Korean Americans plus, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm wondering if partly that generic extravagance is, is a manifestation of that um, anxiety. Um, but I think put more positively, I think that there's something productive about that grafting that's always happening. Um, because I think the impulse to not just tell our story, whatever that means, right, but to always tell our story in relation to these other stories that often crowded out, that often are in conflict, 
that, um, you know, that's the thing that I see both Choi and uh, uh, Lee doing in different ways. And that's something that I found really compelling. And, um, and, and I think it does, because the versions of intimacy that these novels then depict um, are so odd in certain ways or transgressive in certain ways, it kind of lines up formally with the, with the generic weirdness of both of those works. Um, does that make sense? Um, like, and the closest you get to the kind of narrative I'm talking about is this, uh, um, it's, I think it's called Still Life. Wait, it's Halia Lee. Um, it's a kind of uh, autobiography, biography of the grandmother. And you get this kind of very well done, but very conventional sort of mother-daughter narrative that covers uh, Japanese colonialism in the Korean War and then immigration. Um, and that's kind of the closest thing to what you would expect at the core of a Korean American tradition. Um, right, right. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, for sure. I think um, your readings of Choi's and Lee's novel was kind of showing how it's not like that kind of narrative, um, which is fascinating to me because, you know, I've read... Um, you know, four of Chang Wei Li's novels. And even though he does these very strange things in every single one of his novels, the primary conception I feel like a lot of people have is that he's a realist writer. Mm, right. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> he's, yeah, he's so odd. And I think, yeah, the, yeah as you say, the kind of odd polarizing. I think I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've met as many Asian Americanists who hate his work as much as, as Asian Americanists love it, you know? For sure. Like, I definitely, you know, have an ambivalence toward him. Um, but I think you point out some of the reasons his writing warrants some interest, you know, in exactly the ways that you frame it. Um, and I think the kind of generic oddity of his novel and Choi's novel are very much in line with, I think, the point you want to make about the Korean-American's perspective um, on the Korean War, specifically mediated through kind of literary fiction. Yeah, I mean, and I actually have kind of an interesting uh, Ching Ray Lee anecdote, because uh, when I was finished, because his book, Native Speaker, came out in 95, I think, um, right? And it was sort of toward the end of, of my time in grad school. And, um, and it had just come out and all the grad students were like, oh my God, this is like a really good piece of, of Korean American literature. Like there was an excitement about that. Um, and he came, but he wasn't famous at all yet. So he just gave this reading at a bookstore. Um, and I was just chatting him with him afterward. And so like, he wasn't famous. Um, uh, I'm just a grad student. We were just kind of, you know, shooting this shit, I guess. But, um, but the revelations about Nogun Ri had just come out and he was like really, he was all over that. He was like, that's, isn't that stuff crazy? Like it really was just like Vietnam. And so like, I remember that moment, um, like so punctually, you know, like it was, it was, it was a really vivid moment. Um, and then, um, and I talk about this in the book, but the, he does, he has this anecdote about his moment of kind of coming to terms with the Korean war and asking 
his parent, his father about his experiences. It's sort of like I put those two things together. Um, and I think that could have produced a certain kind of novel. And instead we get this other thing, which is crazy, which uh, drives people crazy because, you know, um, and I think one of the most rewarding experiences I've had was like, uh, I gave, uh, I, I zoomed in with a, uh, a grad seminar in Korea and they asked me to talk about the surrendered and, and a lot of them felt like I had captured why they found the novel so frustrating. Um, and, but that why, but that I gave them a reason to think about why it made, you know, like what kind of work that frustration does. Um, so, and particularly in its, in, in its weird relationship to history, um, like, yeah, so. For sure. So you draw from a wide range of scholarship in both Korean studies and of various subfields in American studies. How would you say you navigated the convergences and disjunctures between these codified academic fields while writing your book? Um, I think for me, like, um, that it was really about personal relationships that shape my sense of these fields. Um, I mean, the thing is when you're writing a dissertation, which then turns into your first book, like everybody says you're writing for your committee first. Right. And then you gain a sense of a wider readership as you go to conferences and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, my first book, I just never felt, and it was partly cause I was just making that transition to being, um, out of grad school, but like none of that, I just found the whole process really uncomfortable and anxiety producing. Right. Um, and, and this book, like it, it, the, the various contact, like, like people just showed up in my life at the, at like exactly the right time, um, to help me write the project. And, um, you know, and I, and again, I have to credit Christine Hong for, introducing me first to Henry M who was a historian, who was a historian. He was at NYU at the time. Um, and he did a conference that brought, uh, some Koreanists together. And then, um, you know, young Ji Ru, who's a Koreanist at Michigan and, uh, and Susie, Susie, uh, Susie Kim, who's a historian. Um, and I'm blanking out where she, I think she's at Rutgers now, but, um, people like that just became really, um, a great sort of, they, they, they would tell me what's to read <laughs> basically in the Korean studies, uh, that would help me figure out, um, dimensions of that, that project. And they'd invite me to give talks and that sort of thing. And, and they, and I think initially I felt a little bit like I was a novelty act cause I was an Americanist. Um, but I think they just found the questions that I was asking really interesting cause they were so different than the kinds of questions they would be asking and vice versa. So I just found it to be, like so incredibly rewarding to be exposed to and to connect with these, uh, with, with folks in Korean studies and, and, and the folks I connected with are sort of more on the critical edge of Korean studies. Um, and, um, so that was, uh, that really, that was so enabling to me because I, unlike you, I don't have, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm woefully monolingual. Um, and, and I didn't think I would ever be able to do like any valid, transnational work but they were you know they were very supportive of like i mean i wrote about war memorials because you don't need to know korean to like understand how you're being positioned spatially and narratively as you're moving you know through an exhibit um and 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 films are now sort of uh the way that that korean because of how you that like korean culture is a global culture in a lot of ways and so it's as interesting i find it interesting to think about um the interaction between what a work means in the, in, in the, in the, in the sort of origin culture and what it 
the meanings it takes on as it travels, you know, and that those sorts of things. And the folks I met were all totally supportive about uh, about that. I mean, people in Korean studies were completely supportive of that. Um, you know, and American studies has been like transnational forever. Um, and, uh, and in American studies, I've also found, I found a lot of Asian Americanists who have developed relationship to Korean studies. Um, so, you know, I guess, so I guess what I'm saying is it sort of started with personal networks and connections and that, um, that the works that we had in common then became incorporated into how I think and ended up in the book in certain ways. Yeah, no, I can definitely get that sense that you do your due diligence to these, you know, very important Korean studies works um, and historiographies of the Korean War, Bruce Cummings, of course. Um, of course, yep. But um, yeah, no, that's really interesting um, to hear about how you made your journey into, I guess, transnational American studies, but delving into Korean studies. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I guess there, I, I have been around a group of folks who have been interested in exploring that connection. Um, uh, Robert Koo is a friend of mine. Uh, James Lee at UC Irvine is a friend of mine. And we, we, we partly it was just social. We, we started going to the American Studies Conference in the American Studies Association of Korea. <laughs> uh, there was a group of Korean American scholars who started presenting there and, um, that just produced really interesting conversations. Yeah. And the other piece of it that I would add is like, actually, um, you know, who's a big proponent of this is Viet Nguyen. It's like, how can you be transnational if you don't actually go there? It's <laughs> a thing that he sort of says. Um, and I'm sure it's, it's in essays, you know, but, but the thing is, and he was somebody I went to Korea with one on, on one of these sorts of, uh, research visits, but, um, connecting with Korean scholars, presenting to Korean students, um, engaging, you know, with Korean artists and activists, which I was lucky enough to do. It just really, um, I think it had a kind of, uh, I almost want to say spiritual, um, impact on even how I wrote about the American stuff. Um, and, you know, and personally, intellectually, it's been, it was just incredible to have, have had those experiences. I feel very lucky about that. Yeah, no, that's very powerful. Um, and I can get that sense in your writing um, that there are these personal stakes and kind of a sense of, yeah, a kind of sense of, you know, solidarity almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Intimacy. <laughs> Intimacy. <laughs> um, and it was also very fascinating like at the beginning of your conclusion when you go into your own family yeah. history um and particularly what you say about your grandfather that's so fascinating and you know spiritually impactful in my opinion yeah and um, it's an incredibly yeah. common um experience um what i described like so many korean americans actually have a story like that in their families um but i didn't want to make that the sort of focal point um, and that's just more of a personal thing. Um, yeah. So my final question is, um, is there a particular work or works that you covered in your book that you think should be better known among scholars, students, and the wider public? Um, well, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, I take on some pretty canonical figures, so there's not like a, um, like an undiscovered work in that sense, I guess one work that, that is not a literary work per se, but, um, 
the uh, Clarence Adams autobiography is, is totally yes. fascinating. It's mm-hmm. just the craziest story. Um, this is a guy who this is African American. He was from Memphis, and he was one of the twenty one U.S. soldiers who stayed in um, who went to the People's Republic of China instead of coming back to the U.S. Um, after the war. And he had all this this whole life in in um, in Beijing. He met like dignitaries from africa kind of got this weird like kind of pan-africanist sensibility in beijing um married a chinese woman and then moved back uh to the u.s (laughs) um because of the cultural revolution and opened a bunch of chop suey joints (laughs) in memphis so it's just like one of the craziest lives like you you couldn't make it up you know it's one of those lives you're like is that how is that really how is this not not fiction? You know what I mean. Um, so I just think that 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 I guess that's a work that I would say people should look at just because it's. It, I think it'll just blow your mind if you look at it. And it, it's called American Dream, and there's a subtitle that I'm forgetting uh, by Clarence Adams. But yeah, Toni Morrison's Home, uh, Hodgins' War Trash. These are not like unknown works, <laughs> you know. Um, and um, yeah, and if and if people want to see one film that sort of encapsulates the U.S. view of the of the Korean War, I guess it would be Sam Fuller's *The Steel Helmet*, uh, which actually was filmed and came out during the war. But it encapsulates all the sort of tropes that showed up in the coverage. Yeah, yeah, your um your analysis of *The Steel Helmet* was very interesting. It gave me a good sense of what the film was about. I haven't personally seen it, and I don't think. I admire kind of your patience with like going through all of these early Korean War films because I don't think I would be able to stomach a lot of it uh, personally. But um, you gave such a rich depiction of like the unexpected complexities with some of these early Korean War films. Um, but definitely, and I left the... out the really bad ones. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> these are actually formally the more well executed ones. Um, mm. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, but I was just going to say that uh, I really appreciated you pointing us to Clarence Adams's memoir, An American Dream, The Life of an African-American Soldier and POW Who Spent 12 Years in Communist China. That was just, it also blew my mind to Yeah, and I had to really cut that. down the reading. So if you read yeah. the whole thing, it's like, whoa, it's, 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 it's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I do actually want, I'm, when I'm, um, the stuff I'm doing now, um, I'm thinking about actually focusing on Korean, Korean American works. So I want to give a big plug to the poetry of Don Mi Cha, um, who's like kind of in the Teresa Cha, highly experimental, uh, tradition. But I think the work she does in Hardly War and DMZ Colony is just, it blows my mind. Um, and, um, I think, I mean, she's hardly, uh, you know, unknown herself. Uh, but, but I, I just, I think, I think her work is amazing. For sure. Um, she's definitely someone I talk about in my dissertation. Oh, um, yeah. I'd love to see it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but actually that does make me curious. Um, what would you say is kind of the next steps for you, uh, in terms of your scholarship? Um, well, I mean, another kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to. It's not like I'm totally passive to my relationships, but uh, somebody who's been a big uh, figure in my recent career is Deb Johnny Gangalu at University of Virginia, who invited me to write um, about the Korean War for um, 
the Cambridge History of World Literature. And, and I didn't think carefully about uh, what that meant when I accepted the invitation because I didn't really have much awareness of that field. Um, but I've been writing a little bit more um, in and also against the kind of world literature tradition. Um, and and that's um, and I think one of the things that's liberating about that tradition for a scholar like me is that it really does say that it's it's important to think about um, what Korean literature and film does as it travels. Right. Um, and I always want to be mindful and honor, like, you know, to provide a sense of what it means within the context of South Korea. But um, but that the paradigm of world literature um, encourages us to also think about, well, what does it mean when you have a novel or movie about the Gwangju massacre, um, you know, where a South Korean government that was supported by the U.S. slaughtered, you know, hundreds of civilians. Um, um, what is it, you know, like thinking, thinking about novels and films that engage with that kind of history, what does it mean for Korean audiences today to be confronting that? And what does it mean if American audiences start to think about that? What kind of openings, um, you know, and, and again, it's still about history for me, like what kind of curiosity about history do these works, um, you know, um, encourage? So so I was going to write about Squid Game, but there's already so much really smart stuff online. I don't think there's anything to add there. Like I think, I think the the strange thing is how popular Korean literature and and film have become in TV. Um, and I think there's work to be done in terms of okay, when let's let's leverage this 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 the trendiness of it to um, you know develop a kind of critical awareness, historical awareness that moves beyond being purely a fanboy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you actually just came out with an article on Han Gang, the um, South Korean writer who is probably the most, the closest we could call South Korean world literature, just given this immense transnational readership she enjoys. But um, that's really fascinating. And I, I'd be very curious to see more of what you have to say about that yeah i mean that's um that was also something that got occasioned by deb johnny asking me if i wanted to contribute anything about the um uh the <clears throat> excuse me the global novel and i'd actually um been thinking originally about pachinko um and and i just couldn't figure out what to say about it and then as i was googling i came across a review by her of uh, min jin lee of human acts and a sort of uh survey of her, of, of of hong kong's writing career and i thought this woman said this sounds fascinating and then and i read human acts and it was one of those novels that i just oh my god i just thought it was amazing from the, so i read that before the vegetarian um and it just blew me away. It was one of those novels that I just thought, and, and luckily there was no translation controversy around that one. Um, but I just thought, I got to write about this. Um, and so that's where that article came up um, from. And, and, and that's sort of um, one thing um, that I've been talking to my grad students a lot about lately, which is that like, I mean, one thing that's changed from the early part of my career, which was more about critique um, 
versions of ideology critique, I guess. Like I haven't given that up, but as I get older, I just want to write about stuff that I love. Like I'm not saying that, you know, like I don't want to um, read them uncritically, but, you know, there's not <laughs> there's not enough time in the world for me to, to like continue to do the kind of work. I mean, basically I want to like tell people about works or you know literature or film that i just think is amazing um and and not because you know it's like not like genuflecting before the altar the artist or anything like that but because they do really important work um i think um so so yeah that's that's why i'm on the don micha kick right now um but yeah i want to read more Han gong and see if um yeah, so that that's sort of, I think that's the the project that's going to take shape next is going to be a kind of Korean Korean American, um, um, you know, project and and I think um, I think the other thing I'm trying to think through is affect. Um, you know, there's I'm very uncomfortable about the term Han. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, yeah. But I uh, but I think like a sort of more nuanced understanding of that, um, which I think Kathy Park Hong um, tries to offer in her own way. Um, but I just taught a, um, an article uh, which, which sort of talks about, think, uh, which is trying to think about what she calls uh, critical Han. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, was this from her book, her Minor Feelings, or? Oh no, no, the um, yeah, yeah. Let me find the source. Um, Sandra Sohichi. Ah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, she has. Yeah, she has an excellent article on Han. Yeah, that doesn't just that kind of like interrogates the term. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But then also yeah. reclaims it. You know, that says right, okay, right. we have to understand this essentialist sort of account of Han is a you know, as a product of modernity, of a kind of anti-colonial modernity, right? Mm -hmm. But in our moment, we can reclaim it. You know, it's it's kind of a version of strategic essentialism um, that she ends up advocating, right? Kind of at the affective level. And I think I kind of want to read Kathy Park Hong as as doing that. And I kind of want to read Dami Che as doing that. Um, yeah, this is something I'm also very interested in. Um, oh, cool. The limits of Han, but also the potential um, yeah, because we we've seen how Han gets kind of co-opted, you know, in a way that completely evacuates the term from any critique of imperialism. Um, it, it it would be very interesting to to hear more of your forthcoming thoughts on critical Han. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, they're still yeah. just taking shape, but. Uh... It's also just yeah. like what I'm reading right now or teaching right now is, is partly why sure. it's, it's in my head. But um, so. yeah, well, well, thank you so much, Daniel, for taking the time to talk today and for sharing your knowledge with us. Um, I totally yeah. appreciate it. It was it was it was fun. And um, and I look forward to getting to know your work um, uh, so we can continue the conversation <laughs> for sure. So listeners, please check out Daniel Kim's book, Intimacies of Conflict, A Cultural History of the Korean War, published by New York University Press. Thank you for tuning in.